0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hey, are you ready for bingo? Today on This Working Life, we're kicking off our business buzzword bingo competition. Head to our program page to download the bingo card, check out the instructions and listen out over the next half an hour for all those words we love to hate at our 9am meetings. I'm Lisa Leong and long-term listeners to This Working Life would know I love non-fiction books. In fact, I generally sleep with them. And my books have been incredibly helpful in dealing with the uncertainty and change that has come with this pandemic. But I'm always on the lookout for new life-enhancing reads, so I decided to ask someone in the know for the best book to help me and you right now. Dr Sarah Mackay is a neuroscientist and author, and the book she chose for me is James Clear's New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits. She had me at Atomic.
2: I think in terms of where we all are right now, the lessons from the book were some of the first that I fell back onto when I was trying to find a way to sort of, especially, you know, 12 years ago back in the middle of March, when we were just sort of trying to start to pick our way through this new world that we were suddenly thrust into so many of the ideas that he writes about, I could pull out again and use
1: because I wanted to get through this in a really positive way. And in a nutshell, what is an atomic habit?
2: Yeah, I suppose if we think about what is an atom or what is an atomic habit, it's the sort of smallest piece of matter that makes up everything else. And his ideas are really focused on on this, this same concept, or certainly this book is that when, when it comes to what drives us every day when it comes to motivation, when it comes to behaviours that we perform, behaviours that we want to change, goals that we may set for ourselves, what underlies all of that, the smallest little pieces that underlie all of that are habits. And he talks very much about the neurobiology of how habits are formed um, and a bit of a different way of thinking about goal setting, thinking about our work day and thinking about behaviour change instead of thinking about Goals that are very far away, sort of these long linear type things we're trying to achieve. Mm. What are the little tiny steps and processes along the way? Small habits, the tiny little pieces of the 2000 piece puzzle that we're putting in place every day that are going to get us to where we're going. And I suppose for me, with everything that's going on now, in the workplace and in the rest of our lives, a lot of the goals that we've had, a lot of these great kind of things that we been working towards or trying to achieve, not only have the goalposts moved, they've almost completely evaporated uh. for many of us. Many of us, if we're lucky enough to still be working, many of the goals that we're working towards have gone. And that just fills us with such uncertainty, makes us feel anxious, puts us in this state of kind of hypervigilance. And a lot of James Clear's teachings are really about Not focusing on that anyway, not focusing on what you're trying to achieve, but what are the little habits or systems that you have in place that are going to keep you playing the game? Focusing on where are you trying to get to, but how are you getting there?
1: You mentioned the neurobiology about habits and you're a neuroscientist. So can you talk us a little bit around that in plain English so that we can get our heads around why it's so powerful in terms of habits and helping us change our behaviour?
2: Yeah, well, our brains are very clever and habits are one way of freeing brain space up to think about the things that are really important. So we can think about them not so much as a habit, but as an automated behaviour. Now, that could be uh, an automated motor behaviour. So learning to ride a bike takes you a little bit of time to learn to ride a bike, but eventually you never have to think about how to do it again. Your brain um, sort of turns that practice or that that, that motor skill of riding a bike into a chunk of behaviour and it moves it out of the um, kind of outside parts of our brain, the cortex of our brain, the thinking parts of our brain, it moves them down deep into parts of the brain called the striatum where automatic behaviours get stored. Now once they're stored in there, the brain comes across a particular cue or a context or a situation, for example, hopping on a bike, and then your brain just kind of rolls out this automated (laughs) behaviour without you having to think about it. You don't have to think about pedalling and steering and balancing once you know how. Mm. Now, the same thing happens not just for behaviour, you know, sort of automated behaviours like riding a bike. It can also be a particular thinking pattern that you may fall into, particularly sort of a, a negative thinking pattern. It may be something habitual like, As soon as you wake up in the morning, you pick your phone up and you check various news channels to see what's happening. Or it could be things like if you always get public transport to work, it could be that you always like to sit on a particular seat in a bus. And what your brain essentially does is it's just any particular behaviour that it thinks, well, that's useful. I think it's worthwhile storing that somewhere permanently. It shifts it down into the strait and where it can just be rolled out without thought. And that's good because it frees your brain up to be able to think about all of the more complex decision-making, attention, sort of
1: draining tasks that it needs to do. And so... How do we therefore change a bad habit? I think there's something about consciousness here and being aware of what's happening in our brains that might help.
2: Yeah, this is one of, I mean, it's really, we never talk about habits without talking about what we perceive as a bad habit and how we want to break it and mm. change it. And this is one of the sort of big, big problems that we face because we understand so much about the neurobiology of habits. And we know that if something is a true habit, it's become automated. It's a little bit like riding a bike. We can't unlearn it. It's there. It's stored almost permanently in our brain. So what we need to do is we need to be very mindful or conscious or learn to pay attention, one, on what that habit is that we don't want to perform, but most importantly, what is the context in which we are performing it without thinking? What is the particular cue? What is the particular person that sets you off into a particular (laughs) negative thought pattern? What is the kind of default behaviour that you have after you cook dinner without thinking. It's about thinking about what's the trigger, what's the cue, and then learning a new desirable behaviour in its place. And James Clear kind of talks quite a lot about that um, in his book, that you can't break the bad habit unless you completely remove the cue or you form a new habit based on the particular cues. So you have to make it attractive and you have to make it
1: easy and satisfying. So have you got an example of a bad work habit and how we might change that?
2: Oh, well, I suppose, you know, a lot of people have automatic emotional responses to some of the people that they work with. And I suppose an automatic emotional response, perhaps to a particular manager or a particular management style may just trigger you off with the same kind of emotional response, thought pattern and then perhaps behavior of either avoiding that person or a lot of people do struggle emotionally with those social interactions in the workplace and often they're associated with a particular person. So we could look at a particular emotional response to someone as being an automated habit or behaviour. So what are you going to do? You probably can't get rid of that person. Mm. I mean, I suppose you could quit the job. You could make that person invisible in your life, that particular cue. It's not going to be easy to avoid the cue. So what are you going to do? You're going to have to change your response. And then that's when the hard stuff gets in there, what are you going to do instead when you interact with that person instead of having this automated, perhaps increased heart rate, Mm. um, feeling kind of anxious about what the interaction is going to be like? Can you practice in advance a much more positive emotional response. One of the really cool things about emotions that most people don't realise and that we're learning from neuroscience is that you can practice an emotional response in advance and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse in much the same way a a musician could mentally rehearse a music piece or an athlete could mentally rehearse perhaps a particular move, like a gymnast could practice their moves in their mind's eye. You can practice your emotional response to that person so much so that that You've repeated it over and over and over and over enough times that when you encounter that person, they trigger you, for want of a better word, then the new desirable
1: emotional response gets rolled out in its place. Well, it's like you're practising that automatic response and and making it sort of so buried in (laughs) that actually it becomes your real response when it happens. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. And I suppose there's a lot of talk about how how long does it take to break a bad habit or how long does it make take to to make a new habit and, you know, wouldn't it be great if it was 21 days or seven days? And, you know, lots of people sell books based on those ideas. It's not so much about the number of days, it's more about the number of times you repeat something and also the amount of almost, um, I suppose, pleasure and satisfaction that you gain from that new behaviour. So if it's a highly emotional and a highly desirable Um, habit and you repeat it enough times, then you're reinforcing it. So, it's not really about trying it for 21 days. It might be more about trying it for 21 times.
1: Something that I loved about the book was that I often think I need to use willpower to change habits. Mm. But in fact, James points out that the environment is very influential. In fact, he says, environment is the invisible hand that shapes human behaviour. So, let's take a deep dive into this. Why is it so
2: These automated behaviours don't just happen randomly, they happen because of the environment that you're in and we don't have an automated behaviour without some kind of stimulus or trigger. Now there is some really interesting research that doesn't talk about so much in the book, that one of the best times to break a bad habit or make a new habit is when you um, move house or when you move office, because all of the environmental cues that have been there, that have been triggering off various behaviours, are suddenly not there anymore. So, if you've ever moved house, think about what happens. You don't even know how to turn the light switches on at night. <coughs> I moved house about 18 months ago. The first night I was in the house, I couldn't figure out how to turn the light switches on in the
1: kitchen. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we're dissecting James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, with neuroscientist and science communicator, Dr. Sarah Mackay. James is an American blogger and speaker at Fortune 500 companies and he's used his background in behavioural psychology to analyse how we can work better based on proven scientific research. Sarah. What are your other learnings from this book? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that he does talk
2: about is, um, you know, setting setting yourself up for success (laughs) and having all of the systems and processes in place that are going to enable you to get there. One of the concepts that he does talk about is habit stacking. So if you already are doing something habitual that is useful and good, perhaps you sit down every morning at your desk and you read your emails first, what is a habit that you want to start doing that you're not already doing sort of stack it with a habit that you already perform so first habits opening emails second habit is then spending one hour writing a particular report with the wi-fi off something like that take advantage of that that kind of natural momentum that comes from often one desired behavior almost chaining it to the next desired behavior think about what do you do automatically what do you not do automatically how can you pin those two together it's a really useful concept for us to think about right now because so much of our external world right now has become so unpredictable and chaotic and that just makes us feel so anxious and uncertain because we're all very intolerant to uncertainty and if we stack our habits and we have these systems and processes in place because it's, you know, James Clear very much talks it's about the systems, not just the goals, then that gives us, it automatically gives us structure. It automatically gives us a framework and amongst all of this chaos and it anchors you to the present moment. So not only does it mean you're getting the work done that, that you need to do, it's reducing that stress and that uncertainty that automatically comes with everything that's going on out there in the world at the moment.
1: You talk about habits and goals. Why mm. are habits so much better to focus on than goals? Apart from the fact that I can see that goals are further away, so maybe a bit more vague.
2: Yeah, a purpose of the goal almost seems something distant. I want to write a book, I want to write an article. Whereas if you have a project, you have all of these little pieces along the way. I um, I've done a lot of thousand piece puzzles like a lot of people have in recent months. And every time you get one little piece in, you get yourself this little pat on the back, this little reward. So the focus shifts not from where you're going, but how, how are you doing that? So if goals have changed or evaporated or they're constantly moving, they're sort of an either or. And I think often it can decrease our motivation. And also, having a goal doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get there. As Claire points out in his book, lots of people go off to the Olympics with the goal of winning a gold medal. Not everyone gets there. Having a goal isn't really the determinant of winning. What is the determinant is all the little habits and systems that enable you to keep on playing the game and having a project, each little piece in the puzzle. So you write a book, you wake up every day, you go, oh God, writing this book, it seems so unattainable. Instead, get up every day and think, what new little piece of information am I going to find out today that I didn't know about, that I'm going to write about? I'm going to write a short paragraph on that. It's like doing that one piece in a thousand piece puzzle. Yes, you get a little reward.
1: And and there's something to do with the brain there as well, isn't there? That our brain would prefer a little hit as opposed to something which is a delayed piece of gratification.
2: Yeah, I think for sure it's really important to have a means by where we're regularly reaching little goals because that's what kind of spurs us on and motivates us. And we get what we would call a hit of dopamine for want of a better language. Dopamine's that that neurotransmitter which, you know, makes us feel good and often makes us want something or crave something. Mm. And over time, when we repeat something enough, we don't get the hit of dopamine. We don't get that... good feeling from actually the achievement itself. We get it from the wanting the achievement. So dopamine is kind of what keeps us moving forward. And the more sort of small little hits you're getting of that, the more likely you are to have positive emotions and to be able to get up and keep going. And, And especially right now in this very uncertain time, when we have uncertainty and we have high levels of stress and anxiety, we're far less responsive to rewards. So we need to kind of keep reminding ourselves that there are little things to look forward to and to almost kind of purposefully work them into what we're doing.
1: And so what are a couple of key principles of this book that you've taken to apply to your own work then, Sarah?
2: One is this idea of I work on projects, not on goals. And um, I have projects, lots of little moving pieces and parts. The other that I've come back to time and time again from this book is this idea of Not what is the goal I'm working towards, but who am I becoming on my way to achieving that goal? And as James Clare says, ultimately, habits matter because they help us become the kind of person that we're wanting to be. When we achieve a goal, we think we're going to become this kind of person. So instead of focusing on what is it you're trying to achieve, what is the goal? Who are you on your way to becoming there? I'm wanting to write a book versus I am an author. How do I behave? How does an author get up every day and behave? Instead of I want to be a better leader in the workplace, I am an exceptional leader How does an exceptional leader behave? How can I prove that to myself every single day? So this concept about ego and who am I becoming in the process of getting there, I think, is incredibly powerful and sits at the core of a lot of sort of change that we all want to make.
1: Neuroscientist and science communicator, Dr Sarah Mackay, with her recommended pandemic read, James Clear's Atomic Habit.
2: The ABC has revamped the idea of schemas. What does it really mean to deliver globally? What do we synergize? If you disintermediate compellingly, you may have to optimise virally. We realise that it's better to synthesise nano-intuitively than to upgrade strategically. What do we evolve? Anything and everything.
1: That's the result when we played with Andrew Davidson's hilarious corporate gibberish generator. You just whack in your company name and it spits out that. And while we may love to hate such buzzwords, can they actually play an important role? And where did they come from in the first place? Now, I hope you've got your This Working Life business buzzword bingo cards at hand as we head into the dark world of corporate doublespeak. If you've just joined us, it's on our program page. With me is Shabelle L. Casey. Shabelle works as a consultant in language technology and AI and is currently studying his PhD in linguistics at ANU. What is the difference between technical jargon and corporate speak or buzzwords?
0: Buzzwords tend to be a type of jargon. So, jargons in general, they're words or expressions that are technical or specific to a group or industry. So, you can think of uh, medical terminology such as uh, triage or diagnose. Um, In the legal field, you may have litigators or parties. Now, buzzwords are types of jargon that make their way into the common lingo and they tend to be fashion or hot in a particular time. So if you consider the current pandemic that we're in, some buzzwords are like working from home or the acronym WFH. Or in the current age, we're very much in a digital revolution. And so some hot buzzwords are big data, AI. One that I love to use a lot is sanity check. So instead of saying, oh, I'm going through your errors, Lisa, I'll say I'm sanity sanity checking your your work. (laughs) So the key difference between buzzwords and technical jargon, it's relates to whether it's fashionable or not. So,
1: let's go through the three things jargon and buzzwords can do, Shiva.
0: Sure. So, one thing that I've identified is it makes things easier to communicate because you can communicate more quickly. So, if we just think of general jargon like DNA, that stands for, I think it's deoxyribonucleic <laughs> acid. And nobody's got time for that, especially, <laughs> you know, in a corporate industry. So, uh, in terms of corporate jargon, you get acronyms like KPIs key performance indicators and so using these types of corporate jargon allows you to just communicate more efficiently i must say they don't always have to be acronyms so as long as they allow you to use fewer words to express the same meaning so what one of my personal favorites is using the word uh, or the phrase airtight i'll say you know hey, Lisa, here's my deliverable. I've made sure it's airtight. That's a a quicker way of saying, look, my deliverable is free from errors. I've quality checked it so meticulously there are no mistakes. So that's, yeah, that's one of the first reasons why I use it. Yep, efficiency. Yeah, and a second reason is making me feel like I'm part of a, a group. I don't want to feel like an outsider. I want my language to reflect the Group and identity that I um, that I have in that particular organisation, and so it's quite important that my language reflects that. So. When I was working as a project manager, for instance, a lot of the colleagues in my team would use a lot of project management specific terminology like uh, scrum, agile, waterfall approach, so on and so forth. And I would use or adopt those terms in my lingo as well to uh, establish myself as a project manager within that team. The final reason why I use it is to put a bit of spin on words. So it allows me to associate positive meaning And it also, sneakily enough, allows me to hide some negative meanings. So a really good example of associating positive meaning is in the expression transferable skill. I'm sure we've all heard this or used it in our own resumes. And when you think about it, it actually means, well, you've learned one skill in one context, but you haven't applied it in another context. So it's arguably an incompetency, but using the (laughs) phrase transferable skill sort of jazzes it up, makes it sound much more positive. In terms of hiding negative meaning, so Mm. sometimes if I'm uh, stressed, I'm painfully struggling through work, I feel a little bit shy or hesitant to communicate that in a blunt way. So another one of my favourite phrases that I use is teething issues. I'll say... hey, Lisa, look, I'm experiencing some teething issues on this deliverable, but I'm sure it should be fine in terms of the due date. And that's the sort of uh, a way for me to conceal the fact that I'm really struggling and I'm absolutely hating what I'm doing right now.
1: (laughs) But, Chabelle, wouldn't critics say that maybe corporate jargon then might be a case of lying by obscurity, you know, that it yeah. could be confusing and vague on purpose.
0: Definitely. Look, corporate jargon can definitely be used to create obscurity or, or even conceal the truth. I think ultimately it's it's better to perceive corporate jargon as just one kind of communication tool. So it's not so much that the jargon in and of itself is misleading or lying, but it can be used by people to mislead, or to tell a lie.
1: And Chabel let's talk about the origins of a couple of well-known yeah. buzzwords. Sure. Hit the ground running.
0: Yes, hit the ground running. So in the corporate sense, this means beginning a task at full speed or, or starting immediately. Now, from what I've researched, this was hardly attested before the 1970s and 80s, but it's since spiked in usage. And the origins are a little unclear for this expression but i found some let's say urban myths which i think are quite interesting so the first one says that it was used for troops in combat during world war ii and they would use it to describe troops that are descending from a moving train or perhaps from a plane and that would hit the ground running all
1: right you ready for the second one
0: yes secret source. So, the meaning of secret sauce is essentially an advantage that you or your company might have in your industry. So, if we think of Uber, for instance, their secret sauce is their on-demand service, their ride share capabilities, which the taxi industry otherwise didn't have. So, that's their secret sauce. It was very rarely attested before the 1970s. Now, the theory goes that it emerged during a marketing campaign between McDonald's and another fast food chain, Jack in the Box in the United States, and it's quite funny because I've watched the historical footage of these advertisements, and they both indeed use the term secret sauce and special sauce to, uh, at least in McDonald's sense, to to describe their burgers, and Jack in the Box in the context of their, uh, I believe it was their nachos, and it's quite interesting because these ads were attested in the 1970s and there was a large spike in its usage since the 70s. So, it seems to be the most likely origin for that particular expression.
1: Beautiful. Thanks for uh, taking us through Corporate Speak.
0: That's okay. It was a pleasure.
1: Chabel LKC. Casey. Chabelle works as a consultant in language technology and is studying his PhD in linguistics at ANU. Hope you spotted plenty of business buzzwords for our bingo cards there. Our competition runs for another four weeks and the details are on our program page. This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle. I'm Lisa Leong and Maria thinks I used too many buzzwords. It's So untrue. Don't worry, I'm going to bottom that out and circle back, folks. Until next week, keep working.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.